Good morning. You as well, Jason. Thanks for sharing all that you have as well. Um, donuts are always a two-edged sword, right? You, you enjoy them. You think they're going to be a good breakfast, and then about 30 minutes later, uh, you know, an hour after you've woken up from however many hours of sleep, you feel like you need another nap, you know, when you have donuts. So uh, anyway, hang with me. Fight, fight the donut um, regret. Uh, that we all have on some level. Maybe that's just me. You're looking at me like there's nothing I regret about a good Krispy Kreme. Yeah, as Eric was um, mentioning, uh, where we went yesterday was uh, I was trying to just really do one thing, set the stage for our time together, and do that by establishing um, the, the, cent- the centrality the central importance is how I want to say it. the central importance of us growing into men who are willing and have the capacity to love others. And when you really get to the core of both the message of the apostle Paul and of course the message of Christ, uh, that's, that's measured, if we want to use that word, uh, really by one trait. And that's our capacity to love, as, as Eric was just reminding us. And then the other thing I wanted to accomplish was that 1 Corinthians 13, although it's often uh, viewed in, in really kind of mushy ways at, at weddings and things like that, really is appropriate for a men's retreat in light of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, where he's couching this idea of acting like a man with a lot of uh, war metaphors. Remember, be watchful, stand firm, be strong. These are all war metaphors that Paul's using. In fact, one commentator said that in that passage, you could almost mistake that as a general giving orders to his uh, soldiers. And, and to cap off the war metaphors he's giving there in 1 Corinthians 16, he concludes it in verse 14 by saying, let all you do be done in love, which kind of is startling. You've got war metaphor, war metaphor, war metaphor, act like a man, let all you do be done in love, and it's kind of jarring. And what I wanted to just emphasize at the end, I don't know if I made a good job, I did, if I did a good job doing that, is that when we're talking about love, this form of love, which we're going to get into this morning, Uh, We're talking about a very specific form, a self-sacrificing love. So really it's not war metaphor, war metaphor, war metaphor, act like men, love. It's all these war metaphors, act like men, and another war metaphor. Right? Because every good war movie we know has that picture of self-sacrificing service. Right, self-sacrificial. There, there is nothing. Uh, there is nothing that's more near to a war metaphor than self-sacrificial love and service that was displayed ultimately at the cross on our behalf. And so, to talk about love at a men's retreat is very appropriate. Uh, understanding what love is correctly. Okay, so that's where we were, uh, and and. Where we're going to go today is look a little bit more uh, in, in, at the chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I wanted to share a quick story because as I, I think I might have mentioned to you last night, uh, I just celebrated my 15th anniversary with my wife, Maggie, and um, we're in the middle of all kinds of transition. I'm transitioning off of staff with Campus Outreach. 
Um, I'm transitioning into a new job, which I've started recently, so I'm traveling a lot for that. Uh, our house is uh, just sold last week, so we're really grateful for that. And we just had the inspection three days ago, so you know what I get to go home to is fixing a bunch of stuff uh, for whoever's buying this thing. And so we're just in the middle of all kinds of transition. So Maggie and I decided that we were going to hold off celebrating our 15th anniversary until things calmed down a little bit. Every five years, we've kind of built in a habit of doing something a little bit bigger for our anniversary. Of course, we do something special every year, but then every five years, we kind of save up money, and, and we want to do something big. And so we've decided uh, explicitly with each other, we decided let's, let's save celebrating our anniversary till later on in the year. So I assumed, fellas, that what that meant was we were going to postpone celebrating our anniversary till sometime later on in the year. Somebody's already shaking. You know exactly where this is going. So I show up uh, the evening of our anniversary after getting back in town from work. I know it's our anniversary. I've texted my wife and called her and told her I love her. Happy anniversary. And it's not that I was oblivious to our anniversary, although that's happened before as well. And I show up that night uh, after we get the girls to bed, and she has uh, a dinner prepared for us, uh, a special dinner prepared for us. She has some gifts uh, that she's laid out. She's written this long note uh, to me about this transition in life and in our 15 years of marriage. And I, I want to be able to enjoy her gifts in the dinner and the note, but you can imagine what I'm thinking during that whole time is, I got nothing. <laughs> got nothing so I apologize and she's she was super gracious with me Uh, but you can imagine how terrible I felt of course I stayed up really late that night working on a note Uh, I mean I didn't have anything I didn't have flowers I just it was just awful guys because I assumed though we're going to celebrate this later on in the year you know so anyway I mentioned that husband fail, uh, because it was not a moment in which I was displaying self-sacrificial love to my wife in any way or any thoughtfulness at all. Um, My uh, middle daughter summed it up really well for me uh, the next day when I was kind of telling her what happened, and she's uh, just turned 10, and and her comment was, Dad, you really blew it. It's like, yep, thanks, Addison. You're, You're right. You're right. And I wanted to open up with that because uh, an illustration of uh, a failure to love, because today as we start talking about, okay, we understand love is important, how do we do it? What does it look like and how do we, how do we grow in it? Uh, I wanted to start where Paul starts in this chapter, which is what love isn't. I've titled this talk, What Manhood Isn't, but if you weren't here with us last night or if you forgot, remember I'm using some terms that aren't necessarily synonymous entirely. I'm using them somewhat interchangeably. We understand, I think, after last night that if we want to grow and mature into the type of men that God desires, it's going to require that we learn how to love. And so I'm interchanging this idea of love and true manhood here a little bit. So this Paul starts off with what manhood isn't. And uh, we're going to look at the first three verses this, uh, this morning, and then when we get back together in just a couple hours, we're going to look at the final part of the chapter. So if you haven't done so, go ahead and uh, flip over there to 1 Corinthians 13, where we were last night. I'm going to read the first three verses, if you could just follow along with me. Here's what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, 
but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I ha- if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So before we go any further, let me just pray for us in light of having just read God's word. Father, I I am um, very aware, I think we're all very aware of our pronation to show up at things like this, show up at church, show up at stuff and go through the motions, the charade of it all. Unfortunately, sometimes that's what it's reduced to tragically. And uh, I pray, God, that we wouldn't do that. That I wouldn't do that. That these guys wouldn't do that. That by the power of your spirit and through the authority of your word, you would use a situation like this, a dynamic like this, to change us so that we would be better reflections of your son Jesus to a world that needs reflections of Jesus, to families that need us to reflect Jesus. That doesn't happen apart from you, so we we ask that you would help us specifically in that way, in, in Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of context. Remember, we talked a little bit last night about how important understanding this context is. Uh, And we want to get a glimpse of who Paul is writing to in order to understand this context. And what's very evident from the historical record and from all that we can glean from Paul's letters to the church in Corinth is, is that this was a city that was consumed by personal autonomy, financial prosperity, a very questionable morality. Uh, A lot of commentators would point out that the city of Corinth can be likened somewhat to a hybrid between New York City and Las Vegas of the ancient world. You had kind of the hub of commerce and you had the hub of uh, kind of the entertainment industry. Uh, Corinth was referred to back then as the wealthy city because of the trade that took place there. It was a port city. It was a harbor town. Uh, one historian claimed that there were over, at any point in time, at any given day, think about this, any given day, 1,000 temple prostitutes employed at the Temple of Aphrodite in the middle of the city. So the culture was literally dedicated to sex and entertainment and money. There's actually a, a Greek word that came into being, somewhat pejorative word, uh, which was, which to, to transliterate it, it was, it was to Corinthianize, which meant to be to adopt an immoral lifestyle. So this culture that was consumed by personal autonomy, financial prosperity, everything we just listed, was the culture in which the church was trying to survive and grow. And unfortunately, many of the behaviors of the culture infiltrated the church. And the church, in a lot of ways, would become a product of the culture rather than a product of the word of God. This is something that's not uncommon in any context. In any context, the church is always threatened that way to become a product more of the culture than a product of the word of God, to reflect the culture instead of reflecting Christ. 
here in our Western American Midwest culture, that this is the air we breathe. And we're often blind to the way we live and operate to the detriment of our own personal growth. In what ways is the culture influencing us? We, we, we don't even know, right? It's like asking a fish uh, what, what the water feels like. You don't even, it's, just the, it's just the culture we swim in. One example, though, that I've come across quite a bit in our kind of Western American Midwest culture is, is this. Um, and I won't ask this because I'm, you know, this is a general statement. I don't, I don't mean this to be too pointed, but we don't know or care to know our neighbors in any meaningful way. Uh, I'm not too familiar with Cape in this city, but if it's anything like the rest uh, of, of the, the, the towns and cities in the Midwest, we've got our yards and our fences, and we may know the names of a couple of our neighbors. Again, there's always exceptions. We may know the names. In some cases, we don't even know the names. That would be an interesting question to ask yourself, but like, you know, if you could take the, the five closest neighbors to your house, do you know their names? That's an interesting question. So we may know their names, but do we know how we can serve them? Do we know what their needs are? Do we know what kind of family dynamics they're in the middle of? Uh, do, do we invite them over to dinner? I mean, we could just go down the list of what it might mean to be a neighbor to this individual. And, and I mention all that just to give an example as to one of the ways in which our culture influences us rather than we living out God's word to love people well in our immediate context, which would be those people, right? We don't even, we're not even aware of it. It's just like we've lived, some, some of us have lived in the same place for over a decade or over two decades, and we hardly know the people two doors down. Why is that? Well, because that's what our culture thinks. It's not, you're not going to find that in God's word as a healthy way to interact and be a neighbor, so in light of this context, it should not come as a surprise, this, again, going back to the context of our, of our book here, 1 Corinthians, it shouldn't be surprised that there were significant disputes in this culture around the topics of importance and priority and power. It was all spiritualized, of course. It was all spiritualized in terms of spiritual gifts. But what Paul's really getting at in chapters 12 through 14 are these disputes about whose gifts are more important than other people's gifts. And Paul, Paul's trying to help them out. He's trying to kind of unravel some of this stuff. Um, but what he does right in the middle of it, and you're, you might hear me say this a couple times this morning, is he, this chapter 13 is a timeout. And I was kind of like, okay, we'll, we'll talk about these spiritual gifts are important. It, it, they do have incredible importance to the functioning of the body of Christ. But time out. What is of transcendent importance here of over and beyond spiritual gifts? Well, it's the question of whether or not we actually love each other. Right? That's more important is what Paul's saying. That's, that this is a time out chapter, you could say. And it's important to understand this context, guys, because we live... Uh, we, like the church in Corinth, are fallen in this way. And, and our discussion last night evidenced this, this a little bit. And, and I am going to ask you to raise your hands here. I kind of already did this last night. But if you, we did do this last night, so don't raise your hand. If, if you had more than one indicator on your list of the traits of, uh, um, that indicate one's maturity, if you had more than one answer on your list, which was every single table, right, at best, we lump love into a list of markers. 
And by doing so, we place an improper value on various skills and experiences and gifts and theological knowledge and positions and not the right emphasis on learning how to love, right? You may have had on your list things like your devotional life and and, and aspects of your devotional life and loving the word of God. You may have had on your list aspects wrapped around the idea of integrity and faithfulness or your prayer life and any, any number of really good things that I'm sure is on your list. But if love wasn't on your list, and even really if it was just an aspect of your list, we've missed it. We've missed it. We've turned this into a a game and we're playing the wrong game, right? We're playing kind of our religious motion games. Don't misunderstand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the, the items on that list were not important. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying and what Paul is going to say this morning is that we can do all of those things, and not love, and all of those things without love are worthless. Oh, gosh, man, that's hard. It's a lot easy to kind of have our internal spiritual checklist of what, it th- what we think it means to be godly than to find the time to go learn our neighbor's names and, and serve them. And, and this is for me. Right? We fight the wrong battle. We run the wrong race. I could just keep going on with metaphors, right? We're just, we just need to shift. We need to pivot and focus on this. Paul, if you'll look with me at actually chapter 12, look what he says. This should be an encouragement to us, starting with verse 27. Paul says there's a better way. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The the answer to all those questions are rhetorical, right? It's just kind of no, no, no. There's specific gifts used in specific ways, and we're not going to get into a discussion of what all those gifts mean. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then look how he finishes his chapter. And I will show you a still more excellent way. There's a better way. And that's what we're going to look at. My big idea this morning, really my one kind of takeaway, if you take nothing else away, is this, is because God has displayed for us a more excellent way, we must not be deceived by false indicators of maturity. In our own life, and the life of others, because God has modeled for us a more excellent way, we must not be deceived by false indicators of maturity. In other words, we need to learn to fight the right battle, to climb the right hill, to, to play the right game, whatever, however we want to frame that, and that is a pursuit of learning how to reflect the love of Christ into our context. So um, let, me just, let me just state it this way. God displays a more excellent way, i.e. love, through Jesus. Therefore, we must not value false indicators, i.e. loveless use of gifts. These false indicators are the loveless use of our gifts. I'm going to call this hollow spirituality, this morning, hollow spirituality. Why? Why am I going to call it hollow spirituality? Here's why. In our culture, the gifts that Paul's about to refer to are often mistaken for godliness. 
They're often mistaken for godliness. We have cultural indicators that would make us think just, just you know, by our nature, by kind of how we, we operate, that person is wise or mature or a leader or godly. We, we attach godliness to certain indicators that are false indicators of maturity. And what happens is that creates a hollow spirituality both for you and for the person you're pointing to. Um, I just mentioned to you, house went on the market. Of course, I was trying to do a bunch of stuff to it before it went on the market so it would look pretty. And anybody in, um, anybody a uh, contractor, subcontractor, construction guys, any, anyone in here? I just learned what a weeper was on the bottom of window sills. Are you familiar with that? Weeper, so you got these little, uh, you know, your window sills collect water, and there's these little little holes at the bottom of your window sill where the water can get out, and that's so that the water doesn't pile up there. Well, on my house, all the weepers were covered up with, uh, you know, caulk, and so the water just started seeping into my window, my wooden window sills. It's a really old house, and so I'm going around my house kind of repainting stuff, touching stuff up, and I look at one of my window sills, and I'm like, that looks really interesting so I touch it and when I touch it straight straight through just air underneath the paint and then I go to my next windowsill I'm like oh gosh I got a big project on my head you know um that is that is that was that was hollowness (laughs) and what I'm saying is that we can live in such a way that we even perceive it to be pursuing the Lord But if God were to kind of punch a hole there, air. That's what he means in this passage when he repeatedly says nothing. I looked up nothing in the Greek. Do you know what nothing means in the Greek? Yeah, nothing. Hollow, void. Here was, here was one. Without any substance or importance. So what is maturity? Paul answers it here in the negative. Our three points are going to be this. Maturity can't be identified in the lips, verse 1. Maturity can't be determined by leadership capacity, verse 2. Maturity can't be measured by sacrificial living, that's verse 3. So let's look at verse 1 together. I'm going to read it again if you'll get your eyes on it with me. Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So let's define some terms. Tongues of men and angels. Real quickly, most commentators agree that this phrase probably refers to the gift of tongues. However we want to define that, we'll leave that in a whole other conversation. But the expression is generally enough is general enough to cover all speaking of any kind. These are just gifted communicators, gifted communicators. Um, that's, that's what tongues of men and angels means. Noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Maybe you're familiar with this if you've ever studied this book, but Corinth was known as a, as a city of bronze. And in particular, one of the ways in which the bronze was used was by devotees of Two, um, two gods that were worshipped. One was the god of nature, Dionysius. The other one was Cybele, and she was the god of wild animals. And they were worshipped by clanging cymbals and resounding these noisy pieces of bronze that we call gongs. So the streets of Corinth 
would have been full of these sounds. And if you think about it, that's the only way this makes sense because Paul isn't writing from Corinth. So you, you, know, you, you visited those places that when you think back to now, there's these certain aspects that just, res- you, you remember it. Like if I mention this country or this city, you think, oh, yeah, that, that place had this, right? So Paul, as he's writing from wherever, one of the first things that drops into his mind is, gosh, I just remember people banging on those things all day long in worship of their gods, these noisy gongs. That's what, that's what filled his mind. And so as they're reading this, he knew that more than likely his audience would be hearing people outside clanging their cymbals or banging on these gongs. And what, think, so, so think of the rhetorical impact of Paul's statement here. He's saying speaking gifts are not only worthless apart from love, but they're also offensive if they're not with love accompanied by love. One commentator said, the best speech of earth or heaven without love is only noise. Um, I think this is really important in light of our cultural moment, right? Um, uh, We can listen to any pastor, any communicator at any time. We can just pick our favorite person and sit back and receive whatever kind of sermon we want. uh, that's the blessing of technology, but as my professor always said, uh, technology o- always solves a problem and then creates two more, right? And, and uh, the result of this is that you have thousands, and I, you know, I've worked with students, so I'm very familiar with this. You have thousands of people who are aspiring preachers. They want to be that pastor who's listened to, and the gift of speaking has transcended the desire to be like Christ. Uh, in Paul's day, this was also an issue too, right? The first four chapters I mentioned to you tonight, there was this particular group called the Sophists, and, and these were very, they were street orators, and they would gain gatherings of people by pu- putting up their, their boxes or standing on their steps and, ha- and, and kind of spewing their message, and the best orators would gain followers. And so then all of a sudden, the church in Corinth starts viewing Apollos like that, and Paul like that, and Paul's coming in and saying, stop, stop doing that. That's what they're doing out there, and here we don't do that. We don't value that. So this is exactly what's happening in Paul's day. The application, I think, for this is that could go a number of different directions. The one I'd like to focus on is, is, is to ask you this question is, what do you value as a church? And specifically, I know Eric is here, and I know some of the elders are here, and, and so uh, I hope this is of help to Cape Bible Chapel. What do you value more in the pulpit or from your elders, their teaching skills or their capacity to love? And I don't mean to put anybody on the spot. Eric is a very dear friend of mine. I've known him for a long time, Coer. Uh, but I believe I can say this with absolute confidence on his behalf. What, what Eric and what I would hope all pastors and elders want to be known for is not, not their capacity to preach dynamic sermons, but their capacity to love people, right? And, and I think the challenge for pastors is that if their church isn't valuing love, but instead valuing dynamic sermons, it's really hard to be a man who continues to grow faithfully in his capacity to love people when the expectation is that he's growing in his capacity to preach dynamic sermons. So the health of these guys is largely determined on the value of their church, the priorities of their church. 
So what Paul is saying is that there is no such thing as a dynamic sermon, Bible study, Sunday school class, family devotional, anything apart from love. It's hollow. It's that windowsill. It's hollow. Your ethos, who you are, provides the substance and determines the effect of your logos, what you say. Your ethos, who you are, determines the effectiveness of your logos, what you say. There is no such thing as dynamic preaching. It might sound great. It might be a great sermon. It's having zero effect on your life and on the effect of most of your hearers unless the Holy Spirit, which he often does, just decides to use something anyway if it's not undergirded with love, is what Paul's saying here. So not only, moving on, oh, I think I have there maybe loveless use of lips will hollow you out. Uh, and um, For those of you who are not in teaching roles necessarily, even though you probably are more than you realize, it's, it's true for what you value for those who are teaching you. So not only can you not identify someone's maturity by their lips, it's also significant to point out that maturity can't be determined by leadership capacity or potential. Let's look at verse 2 together. If you'll get your noses back in that, I'll read it. Paul goes on and says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, note all of the alls there, so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Let's define terms again. We've got prophetic powers there. He's already ranked this. We just read it in chapter 12. He's ranked prophetic powers as the second most important gift. Again, we're not going to get into all of that right now. Um, Understanding of mysteries and all knowledge. Knowledge is what people gather for themselves. Mysteries are truths that people can never find out themselves, but God has revealed it to them in some way. And so this phrase, understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, this phrase generally just points to the sum of all wisdom. Uh, Paul is piling it on here. Uh, prophetic, I mean, think of some of these statements. Prophetic powers, all wisdom, all, understanding all mysteries. And then he says, all faith. This faith here isn't referring to just the faith that all of us have as, as Christians, the faith that we have in Christ's accomplished work. Uh, he's referring to more specifically here, and we know this by what he says, this specific kind of um, um, confidence in God that empowers uh, you know, mountains to move. Jesus uses the same metaphor. Generally, that's understood as like hyperbole. Neither of them actually mean that we're ever going to be capable of moving mountains like some Marvel hero or something like that. That's not what that means. Typically what that means is moving large masses of people. It's a leadership skill. Like we have a confidence in God that we can move things. We can move people, right? So Paul is piling it on here. And it may appear that he's using hyperbole, as I mentioned, but I think he's being deadly literal. I think what he means is that let's just pile it all up. Let's just pile up all the power all the understanding, all the knowledge, all the faith. And you know what? Let's, let's just build a tower out of it, a la Babel. And, and if there is no mortar of love to hold it together, it crumbles. It's worthless is what he's saying here. It's hollow. It's void. Listen to this one quote I've got here. I might have it on your pages. I can't remember. Commentator said this, if there is not love, Paul maintains, 
there is nothing of any real value in my ministry. I may be successful, I may get results, I may be admired, appreciated, applauded, but as far as God and eternity are concerned, I am nothing. The Corinthians clearly thought that the possessors of certain gifts were extremely important persons. Not only are they unimportant, they're actually nothing. And I, I can, if you're like me, that you're wanting to push back right here. Nothing, Brett. All right, we, that can't be entirely true. I, I don't think that Paul is saying that uh, in Christ we, we, we lose any kind of value that we have through being sons of God, through our faith in Christ. I don't think that what Paul, that's what Paul's saying there. But what I don't want you to do is to go too far down that road that you miss the, the, what Paul's trying to do here rhetorically. Very extreme words, very extreme statements. He's not going for shock value, but he is going for uh, shifting the priority to love in a very dramatic way because that's where it should be. This one in particular maybe strikes closest to home for me. Oh, that Brett, he's going off to school. Uh, he's, he's really going to be something someday, you know. Um, this was before the, uh, this was, this was not necessarily before, but right in there in the self-esteem movement, you know, now, now we're like uh, it, smack dab in the middle of the self-esteem movement, which is not all bad, but you've got a generation of people. We were just talking about this over here at my table uh, where everybody thinks they're going to amount to something great. And not just great as in like we all mean something and have value and significance, but great as in like we're all going to be like, you know, according to most of the students I've worked with, social media giants of somewhere. And that's how it's measured right now. That's how greatness is measured uh, by followers on social media. I think it's interesting if you look back with me at the text, the pronoun Paul uses too. Did you notice that? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith and if I I I don't think it's accident that Paul's throwing himself right in the middle of this as a leader and reminding himself as he reminds everyone else in his audience that loveless leadership will hollow you out it will hollow you out so not only can we not not only can we not identify someone's maturity by their lips nor by their leadership capacity, maybe most jarring, as Paul continues to build his argument here, is verse 3. Look at that with me. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is a tricky one. And we're going to learn about this tomorrow a little bit more. Uh, what you've got to realize, though, here is that this Greek word, agape, which we've all heard that word if you've kind of been around for a while. Maybe, maybe If not, the, the, this, is, this word for love is agape. It was practically invented for biblical purposes. The, the Greeks simply did not have a word to describe the affection and the care and the sacrifice of Christ displayed on the cross. They just didn't have a word for love that 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 aligned with what they were trying to convey uh, by what Christ modeled in his selfless sacrifice. So um, this word, although it was around, uh, was, was kind of um, 
uh, kind of stolen by the church, by the biblical authors, and in many ways by Christ himself to determine this new paradigm for what love actually is. And we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about what this form of love is in, in a little bit later on. Um, but what's important to know right now for the context of this particular verse is that sacrificial living looks a lot like sacrificial love, but even that can be done without love. Paul is disturbingly pointing out that generosity or even handing one's life over to death for Christ, this just can be done without love. Uh, you know, I mentioned I've been doing ministry now. This is the end of my 16th year, and you'd be surprised how many supporters uh, who I love dearly um, love to remind me about their generosity to me. <laughs> and I'm grateful for their generosity. 16 years of living on support, right? Um, one recently sent me an article he wrote about his own generosity. Okay, well, what was that one passage of uh, uh, you, you, got your, you got your reward? To, <laughs> and, uh, you know, anyway. Uh, as I say that, you'd be surprised how often I am tempted to boast about 16 years of working with college students, too. Sacrificial service, generosity... Uh, is not always done with loving intent as much as we would like to think it is. Uh, I would say it's as often done or sometimes more often done with selfish intent. Selfish gratification makes us feel better. This one stretches our comprehension of man's depravity because how could someone be willing to offer up his life for Christ and it still be counted as nothing because it's done without love? But I think that's the point that Paul's trying to make here as we wrap up this morning. Um, the type of love that he's referring to can come from one place. It's nothing that we can muster. It's nothing that we can grit our teeth and manufacture. It stems from God's great love for us or it does not exist at all. That loveless sacrifice even will hollow you out. And I think it's important to pause at this point and wrap up at this point. Because the question I have for you is when was the last time you've been overwhelmed by God's great love for you? I wonder if you see where I'm going with this. Because how you answer this will inform you on just how much love you are giving away, actual love you're giving away, right? If we can't give this type of love away unless God empowers it, if we're not reflecting the love of Christ, then it's a really important question to ask ourselves: when was the last time we actually knew the love of Christ in an experiential way? Uh, this goes back to what I was praying earlier. We, we get into the charade of doing religious life and, and church, and I, I have this as one of my prayers for the weekend. Let me read you my, one of my prayers for this weekend that I wrote, that you, God, would be worshipped and that your church would be helped. I do not want this to be a charade or a show. What I want personally and what I hope for is that we would actually experience the love of Christ so that we could then be compelled to display that love of Christ. 
So you may be sacrificing, leading, speaking all over the place, all the while not being compelled by God's love. That's the bad news. The good news is Psalm 136. Flip over there. Despite, I don't know, maybe for some of you this, is, this doesn't mean much because you're in a place, season of life, where you're really enjoying the Lord uh, in this particular way, in this most significant way. But maybe you're like me and it's been a little bit of a dry spell for a few, I don't know, days, weeks, months, years. You keep showing up. You're, you're learning, you're participating, you're serving, you keep showing up. But are you experiencing the love of God? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to God, to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love for you and me endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see what the psalmist is wanting to convey here to you and I? This is, the, this is, this is a prayer book, right? That's what the psalms are. That, that regardless of the, the last time you actually internally comprehended God's great love for you, regardless of how long it's been, his steadfast love for you endures forever. Thank you, God. So regardless of who you are, where you are, how much you've been pretending, how unloving you've been, etc., 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 that's all the bad news. God shows his love for you and that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the, that's the verse we whisper into our daughter's ear every night. It's, it's, it's true for them and it's still true for each of us. Loveless use of gifts, loveless leadership, loveless sacrifice will hollow you out. If you're trying to live for the Lord, then you're going to fit into one of those categories. Paul kind of pulled out the junk drawer and just wanted to make sure everybody found a nice little place to nestle, nestle up. Nestle? Why, am, why does that word sound so weird? Nestle. Nestle up in there. You're trying, but it might be the wrong hill or the wrong game or the wrong battle if love isn't primary as you're trying to serve the Lord. All right? What would you find if it was possible to poke a hole in the exterior of your personhood? Would you be hollow? Or would we find a heart that's being resuscitated by the great love of God? And to whatever degree you're like me and you're thinking, oh, there'd be a lot of hollowness in there. Uh, Take hope. Because the steadfast love of the Lord for you endures forever. That's, that's all we have, right? It's all we have. That's our, the great catechism says that is our only hope in life and death. So let me pray. God, thanks for the hope of the gospel. Um, 
that despite our weakness and frailties and our fickleness, and maybe that for some of us we're realizing right now that for the first time in months maybe, we, what have we been doing? What have we been prioritizing? How, how have we been treating our families and the people around us? What are, what are we doing? God, your, your steadfast love um, is true today. There is nothing for us to earn. There's nothing we have to do to fight back into favor with you. There's, there's no way to, to lose your affection for us. You love us, despite all that. God, help us to, to just embrace that reality so that our hearts can start beating again to love others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.